BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey everyone, it's Yasser and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialing a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now, these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT, live on Twitter space, if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, it's slightly different, and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in, where myself and Gerard will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you could let me know your thoughts on the new format, and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that is at the Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A-licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. A topic which kind of leads directly into the content of that webinar around practice design, and what exactly the idea of repetition without repetition means, and what it looks like otherwise. So, Gerard... Let's just, you know, let's, let's dive straight in. Repetition. Um, we talk about it a lot in terms of practice design. Um, maybe just start with what basic, on a, on a basic level, what repetition actually is for you. Yeah, I mean, I think often when coaches think about repetition, they, they, they value it because they'll often think that repetition is rehearsing something. So you're getting an opportunity to do something again and again. Uh, they'll often design practices where it's repetition. I would say repetition is doing something over and over again to, to train it and get better at it. And they'll do stuff where it's repetition with repetition, which is what we sort of demonstrated and, and alluded to within the webinar. So we looked at where certain practices are constant practices. So that meaning that they're not changing because of the rules and the conditions on the design of the activity players are making decisions based on that. I'll receive the ball here and I'll, and I'll do this because that's where I go with the ball. And they'll often train in that same scenario. So it'll be, you know, a passing pattern, uh, dribbling exercise where it's, it could be unopposed and it's dribbling to recreate that same movement again and again and again with the, the, the viewpoint that we'll get better. But the challenge then becomes is that we're training 
the mechanics of a skill in isolation from the context of the game because the game is forever changing, dynamic, unpredictable and chaotic. And it requires players to have to operate within the game, like in the game, play in the game, look for information, search information. Where's the defenders? Where are their opponents? You know, how can they play quickly? When to pass, when to dribble. They've got to make these choices, these decisions. And that, and each choice has a consequence. Whereas often a lot of repetition, is there a consequence based on the action? And it can be activities where, you know, with repetition, we're working on these behaviours that are often prescribed by the coach. So it's creating an environment where players are conforming to this technical model that the coach has versus actually recognising that we have to be able to come up with different solutions based on what the game throws at us. There'll be times where players are pressing from behind, from in front. The gap will be open. Do they see that gap? You know, if they've got space to run, can they run with it? If they've got, if it's quicker to outplay quickly, can they do that? And these, this is good. It's giving them problems to solve. That's the game. The game is all about problems. And we want to form habits, good habits, and ensure that what we're training, we're, there's that transfer. So when I talk about repetition and, you know, what does repetition mean to me, I often think about, I want to work on principles. I want to work on principles of play and the decision-making, the problem-solving aspect of players, being able to look for information from the environment, from the game, and come up with their own solution. And in doing so, I'll work on what I would phrase repetition without repetition, meaning that, you're working on that principle, that learning focus. So you're getting repetition of it, but under different and changing situations. Because there might be times where, because there's a lot of interference, and we, we showed examples of that in the, in the webinar, players are having to make choices, but it's changing. Because one minute they can run across, next minute they might have to run away, might have to screen, they might have to protect. In another practice where it's opposed, there might be what you're working on 1v1 to turn and the ability of like player actions around turning and the principle of being able to break lines to play forward. But then how the players do that will differ based on what the opposition do. If the opposition decide to press high, it might be that do we go beyond them? Or can we play through the press? Can we get people to roll? But now it might be that the, the player doesn't have to roll a player. It might already be able to receive um, unopposed in some respect because the, the, the opposition have dropped off. So he's recognised that opportunity where they can let the ball roll across the body and go forward. There might be other times where they've got to play quicker. You know, it'll, it'll, these situations will change. There'll be times where you're playing into a player and immediately they've got pressure from behind and in front of. What did they do then? They're one versus two. So that's repetition without repetition, where because you're creating a game-like environment, and that's the like I'm, I'm using certain key words here, That'll create that forever changing environment for the players. So whether you're working on a 1v1 game or you're working in a pose game where it's more bigger numbers, 5v5, 6v6, 4v4, 4v2, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, 1v2, 2v1, how you design the environment to create difference is going to be the key because that's what's going to lead to the, the choices that we can obviously unpack in tonight's discussion. And I think that's the, the key, right, Yaz, is how are we designing these problems for players to solve? Does it look like the problems that they need in a game? 
110%. And I think you know, I'd start off by saying the question that really jumps out for me for coaches to consider is what is the priority? Is the priority for you how your players perform in practice, how they perform later on down the line? And what does your practice do for your players? So are, are they getting that repetition? Or are they getting repetition without repetition, like you said there, Gerard? Now, I kind of want to kind of just really come back to that phrase, you know, that whole repetition without repetition, and kind of just go back to kind of where that came from. It was actually it was actually originally coined by uh, a guy called Nikolai Bernstein, who was a motor learning scientist. You know, he talks right. about you know, repetition without repetition being the idea of designing practice to not recreate the solution or reenacting solution, but actually designing practice that allows players to get repetition of the process of identifying and selecting a solution. And I think that bit's really key to recognizing that you know we're, we're not we're not helping players practice a thousand step overs. Actually, no, we're helping players understand a thousand times where the step over might be most effective, if you like. And I think looking at it from that perspective, it's kind of really, you know, ask, comes back to the question of what is your priority? Are you looking for players to become better at performing in training or better at performing in games? And if we wanted to become better at performing games, surely we need to, re, you know, recreate those game-like problems, those game-like variables and give that, give that higher contextual interaction and relevance and um, relatedness to our sessions. So I think it's just, you know, I think that's a, probably a key point to start on. You know, typically, you mentioned there about, you know, repetition. A lot of coaches chase repetition, but actually not really questioning what the repetition is giving the players. Um, again, you know, I've, I've made my, my, my views quite clear in the past in that I'm not a massive fan of unopposed practice where a lot of repetition is, is kind of demanded and, and sought after, if you like. And I think the problem with that is, you know, as we just discussed in the webinar, once you get to the real game, whether that be 5v5, 7v7, 9v9, or 11v11, or whatever format the game you're playing in, it's not unopposed. The variables are very different. You need to take in different information. There's different reference points that you need to react and respond to. And unless those things are present in your sessions, how can you then expect the players to then recognize and appropriately respond and react to those things when they're now put in the situation where they need to? And I think, I think that's probably a key piece to start on. Don't know what your thoughts are on that. Brilliant. I think that's a brilliant segue because obviously it's so important that we know the history of our subject. And obviously he was a neurophysiologist and he, I mean, again, there's loads of things here that people can look into, whether it's nonlinear pedagogy, constraints-led approach, ecological dynamics, if, you, if, if you're academic. If you're not and you just want to know what it means in plain English, I mean, it's interesting that these theories have been around, you know, since the 1800s and, and even with Bernstein, even producing research 1950s you know but now we're having a conversation in 2022 it's fascinating and, and I think you know going into what you just segued in I think the reason why there's a an emphasis on coaches who feel quite comfortable designing these isolated technical unopposed drills and I'm not a fan of it either and anyone that knows me knows that I think it because it comes from a place where it's because they can see it. Like, would you agree, as like they can physically, like they'll 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 decontextualize it. <laughs> they think that it leads to a game, so they'll want to work on the repetition 
to get this ideal technical model of like this is the correct way to pass or the correct way to control or the correct way. There's only this one way to turn or whatever it may be. And if we really break down like how much contact time you have with the players, do we really think that that amount of time is going to equate and make a difference? You know, versus creating an environment where they can they've got more choices to make that they're going to have to solve problems. I think coaches design these repetitive games because they can see it. And because they can see it, they'll then overcoach it and it becomes more coach-centred versus what you just described, Yaz, of like design environments where there's that variability and randomness. That's very difficult to see because now you've got to train your eyes. And a lot of the time, you know, and I feel this with a lot of the staff, coaches don't always like it because the, the game moves too quick for them. So they can't see it. So then they don't, they don't feel like they can coach it. It's too chaotic. It's moving too quick. So they can't give their so-called technical detail. And perhaps that's on us. Like We need to be better as coaches um, to be able to notice these things and the art of noticing to be able to help players. But I actually think it's okay to let them play. Like Actually, they'll, they'll solve problems if they stood there or not. And if there was no adults there, they would. what would they do? They'd probably make better decisions. Sorry, Yaz, you got your your hand up. There's a there's a great segue. Yeah, do you know you. Do you know what? There's um there's a few different kind of fires that you've just lit to me there. I think first and foremost, you you know coming back to it. This is this is going to be this might be controversial, but my honest opinion is this: coaches who rely on unopposed practice, I think, I think they're fighting with an insecurity, an insecurity of having to be in control having to know exactly what it's going to look like, having to know exactly what is going to happen next. Now, that's just the first part of it. I think the second part of it is, like you said, it, it they can see it. So because they can see it, they think there's a measure of success there. But in actual fact, we can't actually see learning until it happens. And it's not because someone's responded to something that we've said. It's all <laughs> responding to a, um, a specific request or demand or command for them to do something. Actually, the second piece is this. A lot of coaches who rely heavily on unopposed practice is because of how it looks from the outside in. I think there's an ego, there's an egotistical aspect to this where if it looks messy, that means I might, look, I might not look like I know what I'm doing. Um, but also, if I control the session, then it makes me look like I know what I'm doing. But they don't understand, in my opinion, that players are otherwise the but the players know when a coach is not, you know, doing a good job. But if it looks pretty, if it looks good on the eye, it's easier to sell it to the parents that something's taking place, something, something positive is happening. But actually, you and I both know learning learning is messy. No, you've nailed it. I mean, it's, I couldn't have said it better. And I think just another layer on top of that, you mentioned there about... If the game is messy, the coaches need to be able to train their eye and watch the game. And I think the problem problem that occurs is this. If they let the game play, if they let it get messy, uh, the technical detail that they're, they're trying to impart onto the players becomes irrelevant. So it's now looking at the game, almost having to study the game while it's happening in front of you and being able to react appropriately enough um, and efficiently enough to make a difference. So I think there's so many key things that kind of in what you said there that just really kind of just expanded the conversation and it kind of takes me down this path of, um, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier on, around the idea of the techno technical information. What is 
technical information? What is the right information? Is is it is it right or is it dependent? Is it subjective to a particular moment in the game? Is it, what, what are the variables that we're considering when we're saying this is the technical information that we're looking at? So I think that's a really key piece to kind of consider as well. And the way I look at it is this: you've got information which is objective and information which is subjective. Objective information, as an example, is right. We need to hit the ball through the middle to make sure it stays at a certain height. We need to hit the ball round. If we had a clock face as an example, we need to hit the ball at three o'clock to give it a spin towards the left. Likewise, we need to hit it towards the, the nine to give it a spin towards the right as an example. That's subjective. That is physics. Not, nothing else can happen if that doesn't happen. However, the subjective part is around the surface of the foot. Yes, we can argue and say that the instep or the inside of the foot gives us more accuracy. The laces gives us more power. All these things, yeah, biomechanically, which might be correct. But for us to suggest there is a right technique, I think, is, is, is a really dangerous territory for us to step in. Because then we get to the point of trying to prescribe and dictate to players what it should look like, ultimately stifling creativity, stifling any freedom of expression that might exist otherwise. So I, I'd encourage coaches to really nail down, laser focusing, right, what is the objective detail that the players need to know? And can we collaborate with the players and understanding what the subjective piece might be for them as individuals based on the, based on the variables at that given moment in that context? And I think if we're able to get to that point, we then get to a situation where we are creating or we are developing more creative players, allowing players to express themselves. Freedom of expression is going to be massive because now we're just telling them, right, this is the base level that you need to kind of implement to get to where you want to get to. And, I, and, I, and I'll finish with this and get your thoughts on it. Is if you, anyone listening to this right now, if you're Pep Guardiola and I'm Erling Haaland and I score 50 goals in the league at the end of the season, but 47 of them have come off my right knee, are you going to care? Are you really going to care how I scored them as long as they've gone in? Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been a better technique. But if I've got the job done, what's the issue is the question I'm asking. What are your thoughts, Jared? I actually agree. And I think it's interesting because he, he said controversial, but it's right in the sense of these players, how they get the job done is, you know, because there'll be people listening going, well, what if I've got this child who can't kick a ball? Like, at what point do I teach him how to... And I've had that. Like, you, there will be times where you'll again you can you can recommend things or you can guide them to solution you can ask questions but there'll be some players where they'll do certain actions as you said which could be like how you know use an exaggeration with with finishing it could be like how they pass i've seen some unorthodox techniques in my time but they've still got the ball from a to b so you know it's it's an interesting one i think it's dangerous territory to prescribe only one way to do it. The challenge also is that it's difficult for them to be able to model it. You know, and I think going back to the earlier piece where you said about coaches and the, 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 the control, it is about control because that's how it came. It was, a, it was, you know, teachers would do PE physical education and you got 30 in a class and it's get them in lines and try and control. So they're not going crazy and manage behavior. And we've took that into coaching. 
But then all it becomes is that the coach will spend more time talking and describing the, the, the activity than coaching the players and coaching who's in front of him. And I think, you know, if you're in those environments, to your point, going back to the control, why, you know, they're only going to rely on our solution. So it becomes very coach-centred. The players will never, if they face a problem they've never seen before, they're going to just look to us for the answer. Whereas if we're creating environments where there's a little bit more exploration, and obviously too much can be too bad as well, but there's a little bit more exploration, there's more guidance, there's more facilitation, the players are going to solve problems. They're going to learn how to solve problems because they know the coach isn't the only one. Like He's not the oracle. And it is a control. It's an ego thing. I think you're bang on. I think you're completely bang on. I think we've got to be comfortable as a club and as a as a group, as a fraternity of coaches to create more environments where we're letting the players teach each other. And that'll throw coaches off. Like There can be peer-to-peer learning. Some players will come up with some solutions and it's like, what did you notice Johnny do? What did Yaz, what could you do? Ah, okay. And get them to notice, get them to look for information from the game, get them to... There's a lot of learning that can take place. All the information is there. We just have to tap into it. We don't need to be the oracle of all knowledge. And and I think the reality is this: we never will be. We never will right, have all the right. knowledge. And I think I think that I think the, the, the sooner we get to that point, the sooner we can accept that actually we're, we're all part of this journey. We're all on the journey of development together. And I think that's one of the biggest things that's kind of helped me along the way is actually, you know, I, I, I for me myself, I learned early on to embrace challenge from players because. I had to recognise I don't have all the answers, and I think I don't know what you know. I don't know how it ended up coming about, but I actually very early on realised that and accepted that, and actually I embraced challenge from players. In fact, my main thing was I I, I looked forward to players questioning me and my any information I'd give them because it made me think about ah sugar, am I actually giving them information which is impactful and effective, incorrect more than anything else, or am I just giving them my opinion? And I think that's the key piece. And I think a lot of coaches, you're giving opinions. Give opinions. And if you're going to give opinions, that's fine. But give it with rationale. Tell them why you want them to do it this way. Tell them why you might not want them to do it another way. But also allow them to sit on, the, sit on that opinion, sit on that information you've given them and reflect and question whether it's actually right for them. So one of the biggest things that I often do now with players, and I've done for several years now, is... Um, I, I try not to give any technical information anymore, unless it's objective, like I mentioned. However, what I do try and do is where I do offer them some support around maybe the subjective piece of technical information is getting players to really tune in to how they feel when they're applying the subjective piece, when they're applying the objective piece, not specifically looking at the outcome to start with, because you've also got to recognise when we're bringing in new information to players, it might be foreign to them, and it might make them not only um, respond differently from a, a visual perception perspective and then a reactionary perspective as, in relation to that, but also it might make them feel different. So the, the question then is, players, whoever, you, you know, whoever you're working with is, pay attention to how it makes you feel, but also recognise, does it feel uncomfortable if it does? Does it feel uncomfortable because it's a new way of doing things or because you don't feel it's right for you? And I think that's a really powerful thing that I've started to do with a lot of players over the last few years, that 
I think once they get to that point there, because a lot of them, you've got to remember this, the older they get, the more environments they're potentially been exposed to. So they've been exposed to different levels of detail, different pieces of information, different um, perceptions around what might be correct and incorrect technique around different aspects of the game. So we now need to take that into consideration and almost kind of unravel what they know, what they believe they know, and bring them back to as close as possible what, what might become a blank canvas again, if that makes sense. Completely agree. Can you hear me okay, Yaz? Yeah, it's a little bit windy. But... Sorry. <laughs> I've gone into a typical Kansas. I'm outside now watching our U9s play. I'm in a blizzard. Sorry. No, I completely agree. I think it's bang on. So I think, you know, just again, coming back to the whole piece around repetition, whether it's with or without the repetition, just to kind of clarify again, repetition with repetition is literally the idea of having a constant action taking place again and again and again. So that could be me and you, Joe, are 10 yards apart, just knocking the ball back and forth for however long the coach decides he wants us to do that for. Thinking it's going to help us get better at passing the ball, but actually all we're getting better at is passing 10 yards between each other and not necessarily getting better at applying that within a game context. Repetition without repetition, again, just to clarify, it's looking at the idea of designing practice, designing sessions, designing an environment which encourages the repetition of the process of finding solutions to the problems as opposed to reenacting a specific solution to a problem that they don't even know that that solution is necessarily linked to. So what I mean by that is, if we are going to give just repetition and be constant with it, how, how, how skillfully, how articulate are we in actually delivering information which is going to allow the players to absorb and understand and have clarity on the context of which this skill that they're currently or this technique, rather, which they're currently uh, trying to develop and they're getting practice on, where does that fit in the game? So as an example, how might we bring context into it? So rather than me and you just passing back and forth 10 yards apart, I might then say to you, right, Joe, every time you receive that ball, I want you to receive it in a way where you've got a defender coming off your left shoulder. By nature... I'm now giving you some context to work with. Therefore, by you know, with those reference points alone, your technique will change. Now, that's how you might bring context to it. But then the question I follow up with is, if that's going to happen, if your technique, quote unquote, is going to change because now you've got the contextual interaction and the contextual information to deal with, why do we do constant unopposed in the first place? Because it's not going to look like that when you get to the game. And that's even me just giving you some context without actually having the person even there to approach you and press you from your left shoulder, as an example. Coming back to the top of it, it might not look the way we need it to look when it gets to the game. So why do we coach that way when we're working on a practice? don't know what your thoughts are on that, Gerard, man. Outstanding. I think just to summarise, I mean, there's, some, there's a lot of detail there. I think the two real big rocks are Again, are we training environments that prescribe a solution that's probably not even a solution that they know? And do they are they able to recognise when it applies in a game? And that's a, that was such a big one. And then, 
you know, the last rock being around just recognizing that we're, we're, we're designing problems for them to solve. It's their game. The game belongs to players. We want, we keep saying that we want these decision makers, we want players to be able to solve problems. But then we have to create environments where they can do that. But if we already prescribe what that solution should be and look like, it, that implies that there's a set, there's a solution for every problem. The, you know, every it's the same solution for every problem, which isn't the reality. So no, brilliant. No, and I think you're spotting as well, just to kind of build on what you just said there around, you know, there being set solutions. There can be set solutions, but those set solutions are also dependent on specific variables that will exist. Now, as a coach, if you're listening to this, all I encourage you to do is, right, if I'm giving a player a piece of technical information, whether objective or subjective, based on how, how I've um, broken that down, at what point does that information no longer become relevant? At what point does that information no longer apply to this context? So as an example, if you know you, you would not coach your players to shoot in one particular way if there is a defender in front of them as opposed to if there was no defender in front of them. So think about that. Think about the variable that which impacts on the decision around what information you can provide for players and therefore subsequently what information a player would need to apply within their technique, within training or a game. Because those variables do have impacts. Those variables must exist in a game. So therefore, to get the best out of your sessions, they must exist in your, in your session. Now, if we've already accepted that, actually the technique will change. The only question I ask for coaches to consider is if we have accepted that the technique will change just because of variable, variable interactions, why do we still coach unopposed within our team sessions? That's not to say it doesn't have a place. It's just a question and a consideration to make. I think this is a great segue, actually, into any questions. I know, Johnny, you've got to help if there's any questions from the group of anything based on what's said. Anyone want to share any questions or comments? Yeah, boys. There's a, if I can jump in, sorry. Hang on, give us a sec. The wee man's just got home, so I'm transitioning to downstairs so that you just don't hear all the chaos in the background. Um, I think that something you said earlier that just to kind of pick up on was you said that we don't have the perfect answer yet but the, I think the aim is to get closer to it you know it's not like there's studies being done of everything bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then place a five dollar wager on any sport you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. 
new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. ...session and we're analyzing what gets us there. Um, one thing that's coming to mind while you're all talking on this repetition is, is like the Anders Ericsson deliberate practice. And, and I know there's two sides to this discussion on it, but the way that I coach is in terms of are the players giving themselves feedback or are they an autopilot? So if you're doing something that has repetition within it, as a direct passenger, as an example, is it is it feedback or deliberate practice or is it naive practice, which I would say is the players on autopilot? And, and I, I'd love to get your ideas on... And what I always say to the boys is that I coach anyway, is that it's like golfing in the dark. I practice in the dark all the time, so I've got no idea what the ball does. And I, I don't know what you guys think on that. Johnny, just uh, just unpack that one a little bit, man. Yeah, man. So so when I'm when I'm coaching the my my group, well, I'm not doing it at the moment, but when I am coaching, I'll start off with a practice that you are talking about a repetitive practice that doesn't really have a focus to it. I'll then highlight the difference between whether they're actually thinking about every movement, what they're doing in the practice, or whether they just switch off. And and what I use in the caveat is, I think I've said before, is are you chasing your 10? So are you trying to chase and be a 10 out of 10? Or are you dropping on autopilot and you're comfy being a 5 and a 6 out of 10? And then I'll move back on to my golfing analogy, which is, is where I'll say to the boys that I love to play golf and I love to practice, but I only ever practice in the dark because I'm always on autopilot opposed to actually specifically thinking about the movements I require to give myself feedback. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, no. I think, I think again, it just links back into I think, the point I made a few moments ago in that <laughs> really... If there's no context, they will be on autopilot because if they're trying to complete a task and not deal with a problem, right? So they might, as an example, if I say to you, right, Johnny, Gerard, get together, you're gonna, we're just gonna do in, in, inside foot passes over ten yards. That's all you're focused on, inside foot passes over ten yards. You're not, you're not paying attention to whether you're actually striking the ball specifically in, in a particular point of the ball. You're not, you're not paying attention to um, uh, necessarily the ball speed because actually the ball speed and how much uh, power you place in your pass or whatever that might be. Actually, when it comes to a game, all of those decisions will be impacted by the variables around you, i.e. subsequently pressure on defenders, time and space for your players on the ball. And this is, this is the one that, that, that kind of just boggles me more than anything else, right? When in a game, right, realistically, when in a game would you want a player to pass the ball? And this is a question for you, Johnny. Oh, putting me on the spot. Yes. Oh, you're making me all nervous, man. When it is the right thing to do for this specific moment in the game is where I would go with that. Right. So if, it, if, if we're suggesting there's a right moment, that means that right moment must be linked to specific variables, surely. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It would be right. what pressure okay. or an open teammate right. or feedback. So now, 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 if your player is on the ball, 
when would you encourage him maybe not to pass it? Well, I'd like to think just, you know, to make myself sound like a good coach, I would like to say I don't do that, but obviously I probably do. Um, I think when he's under pressure or okay, or out so of control. If, if, if he's out of control and he's under pressure, you might want him to pass. Is that what you're saying? No, I would do the opposite. I wouldn't. If, he, if he's under pressure and out of control, I wouldn't look to add or force any decisions on them. Okay. Now, None of those variables would be present if I asked you and Gerard just to pass the ball 10 yards apart. Now, if you guys were the players in that context, how could I ever then un- expect you to understand and, uh, and recognise when that might be appropriate or inappropriate to do so? Does that does that make sense? Now, uh, yeah, man, absolutely. So, you know, the question I come back to is, again, if we want our players to get better at playing the game, let's look at what the game demands from them. Let's look at what they have to deal with when they're in the game, right? And this is this goes back to my whole my whole my whole. Um, so I was interested. I was speaking to a coach recently. Since when I was younger, I used to love playing the PlayStation. I still do. But I used to love playing the PlayStation, getting out the steering wheel and the pedals to play Gran Turismo. And I would play the hell out of that game. But it didn't make me a better driver. Because the reality is, it wasn't real. So, I, I, I say that to say this. I want coaches to consider, and I encourage you to consider, just because the concept, and if I go back to my analogy, just because there was a steering wheel in my interaction, just because there was a set of pedals in my interaction, just because there was other cars in my interaction, doesn't mean I'm actually working on the real thing. Just because you include passing, just because you include pressure just because you include a pitch doesn't mean it's the real thing it only becomes real when it responds and reacts the way the real thing would and the consequences are subsequently aligned to the way the consequences would be in the real thing if that makes sense john you've got your hand at both of them right so can i i throw this idea at the both of you um me and me and you both coach together I'm standing on the sidelines and I can see the opposite of what you guys are trying to say. A repetitive practice that the coach is leading and it's the coach making the decisions. How do you highlight that to me without maybe destroying the relationship or overtaking the practice along those lines? Just want to clarify. So we're working together and you want me to basically give you observational feedback. Is that correct? Yeah, man, we're we're both co-coaches, same age group, something along those lines. So for me personally, and this is you know, it's a, it's a good question to ask, and I'm glad you've asked it because I get into this conundrum all the time, right? So as, as part of my role as a coach developer and the work that I do, I, I'm out constantly observing, supporting, and challenging coaches around their practice, not to say that what they're doing is wrong, but just to highlight some considerations as to. Right, you're saying you want your players to achieve X, and X might be um, uh, developing their performance in a game. But actually, your sessions aren't doing that. So a lot of my my work, if I was to have that conversation with you, right, Johnny, let's look at the variables here. If this was a game, like I've just asked you that question, what would, why would you want your players to pass the ball? When would you want your players to pass the ball? 
when potentially would you not want him to pass the ball? When potentially would you not encourage that pass to take place? Now, you've said that, you know, your players, when under pressure, you probably want them to kind of, essentially the way I've understood it, you want them to work their way out of that rather than just pass the block, essentially. Is that fair? Yeah, um, I mean, it comes down to time, doesn't it? When someone's under pressure, pressure, they start to think. And if someone's thinking, right. they then lose control. Huh? So I like them so, to try and figure it out. Cool. So you, you've given me that as an example. I'm now saying to you, right, Johnny, so if that's what you want, what are the variables that are going to have an impact on them if they're doing that in a game situation? You just mentioned there about the idea of pressure and time. Okay. Now, there's so many other variables which could potentially be involved in that, but you've, let's just start with those two. The first question I'm asking you is, right, okay, what does that pressure look like in a game? What does that time look like in a game? Now, the follow-up to that is, no matter what you say is, well, is that, have they got that same thing to deal with in, in, in your session? Have they got the same time and have they got the same pressure? Have, is it in the same area of the pitch? Is it, is it in relation to the same um, the outcome? So are, are you looking to potentially, you know, focus around working the final third or the midfield third or the defending third, whatever that might look like. There's so many variables and we need to get to clarity on terms of what it is that you're actually trying to get out and what the variables would actually be if that was in a game, if that makes sense. Once we've got to that point, it won't take very long for you to be able to say, actually, the variables are quite different. Okay, fine. If the variables are different, why are we continuing in this manner? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely, my man. So, you know, just coming back to that, then this is now, right, coaches, let's move away from this idea of we're trying to control everything and let's be willing to embrace the chaos and the unpredictability, which is natural to the game the game is unpredictable but if we can embrace that and accept that we're not in control of what happens in the game then we can learn to get better at observing what does control the game which are the variables which is the pressure which is the directional aspect of it so you know again personally speaking i it, it boggles my mind that people would use multi-directional practices when they can you know, quite often accept and agree that directional practices are more relevant to the game. Well, if it's more relevant, why are we doing things that's less relevant? Now, anyone can make a case, but ultimately, if we've accepted that one thing is more relevant than, than something else, why are we not sticking with that one thing? Well, the reality is we don't know enough about that one thing which is relevant, so we stick to the irrelevant stuff which we might be more confident with. Again, asking the question for the coaches to consider, do you know enough about what you're talking about? I'm not saying you do, I'm not saying you don't. All I'm asking you to do is, is ask the question. Because if you're if you're if you're veering away from what is relevant and realistic, are you really helping players get better? If you're veering away from what is relevant and realistic, are you putting on an act? If you're veering away from relevant and realistic, who's this for? Is it coaching for you or is it coaching for them? Which is what our topic will be next week when we look at it. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Joe or Johnny. Or if anyone else has any questions. The only thing I'd add is that obviously direction is important. There's always, I mean, the game is directional, isn't it? I mean, the game's multi directional, really. You can go anywhere, but the game's directional in the sense of we attack one end and we defend the other. So then. It's understanding, like, whenever we're designing a practice, what is the method of scoring? 
are we able to attack one end and defend the other? Where are we defending? What's you know what are we defending? Because that'll influence and shape decisions and player actions, and obviously not only player actions but like the principles we're working on, because that's what they've got to do in a game. You know, if we're looking at building up, I'm watch. I mean, I'm watching a game right now. It's directional. How can we get the ball from our half into the opponent's half? And there's a lot that can go on. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of interactions that need to take place to do it, to be able to move the ball, to move the opposition, to get the ball into the opponent's half. So the reality then becomes is how can we design a, an environment where the, the method of scoring is clear and it's relevant to the game and their game, what their game looks like. You know, whereas we could do other practices, but again, does it look like their game? And are we, are we, what's the outcome? You know, if we're keeping the ball for the sake of keeping the ball, but does that look like the game where we want to attack one and defend the other? And again, how do you manipulate that? Whether it's end zones, goals, counter goals, big goals, little goals, target players, finishing zones. You know, there's a million and one ways you can do it. But it's just making sure that we're really clearing the, the designs that we're creating. Because it's got to look like some of the problems that we're trying to recreate. You know, what problems are we trying to solve? Or when I say we, it's really the players that are solving. No, I think you're spot on there. And I think that's actually come back to the phrase that you used earlier. It's how well are we designing problems for our players? And are we designing the problems? And I don't even think it's necessarily a case of designing the problems. Or how well are we observing the problems that the players have to deal with? And how well are we into, or how good are we and how effective are we at actually identifying those problems, noticing those problems and then transferring those problems from game to practice. But import, more importantly, highlighting for the players and, and helping them understand and recognise this is this problem, this is what the problem is, and this is where it exists, and this is how it might present itself in a game and giving representative examples of that because so many times especially now when you're talking about unopposed practice in particular, get that repetition. But you don't get you don't get to understand what the problem is that you're actually solving. You don't get to understand what the variables are that are going to impact. And I'm and I'm really, really harping on about these variables because they, they 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 are the difference. If they do not exist, how can you bring context to them in a way that they still are considered? So if you are going to do unopposed practice, how can you help your players understand what might actually impact on their decisions and their ability to make those decisions in a game. If it is that 10 yards away passing practice that we talk about as an example, where does the context come in? Have your players understood that actually, like I, said, like I gave you an example, if we're going to receive as if a player is shutting us down from the left-hand side when this ball's coming through, how does, that differ, how does that differ to if we receive when the ball's on the right-hand side? Now, for each individual, that might be very different. You know, the objective piece there might be, can we get ourselves in between the ball and the opposition to create that distance and that barrier? But how that looks subjectively might be very different. You might have a player who's comfortable receiving on the outside of the foot, so therefore they're going to use the outside of the foot. You might have a player who's more comfortable receiving um, with the inside of the foot, so they might want to use the inside of the foot. How does that differ? And recognising those individual differences. But in order to do that, we need to understand what the game is demanding from the players. We need to understand that when the game is in play, the game is in motion, 
different factors will affect players differently. Because some players are quicker, stronger, taller, smaller, um, uh, weaker, whatever you, whatever, whatever it is lo- looking like. And you know, every time they come up against a different player, that that, that balance and that kind of individual battle changes which again subsequently will affect the variables which then subsequently affect the actions they're responding with in response to the actual the unpredictable nature of the game like we've mentioned multiple times so now there's, I think there's a lot in there I don't know if you've got anything else that you want to add or if anyone else has got any questions but please if you do drop those questions and let's, let's unpack this let's unpack this further There's no questions from the, the audience. I mean, I've got one that is more of a, not necessarily they have to respond now, but something to go away and have a think about is, you know, what do your practices currently look like now? How would you describe them? And then I think, you know, a second one would be where in your environment do you feel that unopposed as a place or unopposed with interference? or Because we just did a webinar on unopposed unopposed with interference opposed where it's equal numbered and then opposed where it's outnumbered and how much on that spectrum of where on one end of the continuum we're working on isolating mechanics and coach centered and unopposed and on the other end it's the game it's the environment and it's 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 opposed where on that practice spectrum do you typically sit and if so why and how can you design environments that will be more towards that game and the environment? There's probably a lot of questions in there in one, but it's just something to think about of where is your default? Because that will let you know whether you know where your values lie effectively, what you value most, and then what you might need to do differently. Yeah, Johnny, you got your hand up. Can I ask the why you think this happened? You're both giving feedback on the webinar and on this about about why certain there might be a better way or a more efficient way of, of doing it. So why does why do you think it's still a big part of it? Is it like Bopic, the way that Coach Ed has been done? Is it because we see elite athletes and just impose what we see from the best on an 11, 12, 13-year-old. Why do you think it is how it is at the moment? You mean why? Do I you think you've answered a few of that yourself. There's a multitude of, you know, scenarios. One being that people see certain drills on TV and think, that's what I can do with the kids. Because that's what, you know, if, if Guardiola's doing this, then I should be able to do this. So there's a danger there. Coach had historically has gone through a massive transition paradigm shift where before we were very much, it was, I mean, when we did our license, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we, As And it was almost like old level two, even up to our UA4A. Stop, stand still. Let me tell you how it was freeze moment. Stop, stand still. Coach has to demo everything. There was an ideal technique to the solution. You had to show them the technique. And it was very much error correction. So it led to a lot of practices being designed where it was very repetitive, coach-centred, and we would have to try and be the ones who solved the problem to demonstrate our knowledge, to pass an exam. So then coaches would go away and recreate that environment. 
Whereas now we've gone to the other shift, which is, you know, and it's interesting. I've, I've seen the shift even with myself. I very rarely stop it. I probably do most of my coaching interactions during the water breaks or drive-bys, unless it's a real global message. And even then when I am stopping it, how much am I really telling them what I want? Or am I asking them questions? Am I guiding them on where to look? Am I letting them come up with solutions? So I think like we've seen a massive paradigm shift because we're, we're reflecting on, again, history. You know, when a lot of this came in, a lot of school teachers were doing the coaching. Don't forget, a lot of old school teachers and old head teachers and principals. And that went into, like, even in England, you know, um, you know, schools football, school FA, and you'd have different regional representative squads. They were typically coached by a maths teacher or whatever, or a PE teacher, whose environment is, you know, I need to control 30 kids in a class. And if I have them all running around chaotic and playing in games, it might get a bit silly. So how can I get them in drills and in lines where I can manage the behaviour? And it's slow enough that I can affect it. Because it goes back to um, Yaz, you made this outstanding point earlier where coaches feel that, like, they feel learning is taking place because they've been able to stop a session, tell the kid what to do, demo it, and then the kids recreated it. Not always, but sometimes kids will show, they'll, they'll, they'll model that same solution. And then coaches go, see, got it, that's learning. But that's not learning. All he's doing is regurgitating. That's low-level thinking skills. The challenge now becomes is can he apply? Does he know how and when to apply that in a game? And, and, and the actual situation that occurs in a game. And I think it's just a historical thing. And we've, we've been very good at coaching that way. And now it's, we're trying to relearn how to coach. And it's, it's hard and we're fighting a lot of battles and some are doing it more than others. But, you know, we've, we've got to keep banging that drum. Sorry, Az. No, no, I think you're spot on. I think that's a really good bit of what you said there. And I think there's two key things to highlight. Um, Johnny, in response to your question, like the way in which um, myself and Joe are advocating coaches to kind of consider it, to approach the situation is these aren't new ideas. These are not new ideas. They might not be mainstream, but they're, they're definitely not new. You know, Joe, I mentioned earlier about you know, when I, when I talked to Nikolai Bernstein and the whole idea of repetition about repetition. This is research. It's been done decades ago. Um, but I do come back to the point I mentioned earlier. I think it is about ego and control. Coaches want to know they're in control because the control element gives them some sort of certainty. It gives them an element of, right, I know where this is going, but actually the game, you never know where the game's going to go. So how can we coach in a way where we want control when the environment they're going to be in is one that has no control, if that makes sense. And I think that's a real key piece to touch on. You know, I spoke to a coach the other day and he, he was telling me about the idea of, you know, how he, how he progresses from unopposed practices and, you know, he, do, he does it at the beginning of every session because he thinks it's a great way to start the session. Yeah, but for who? For who is it a great way to start the session? Because, again, I come back to the point I made a few a few conversations back, I think it was around the Rondo one or even the unopposed versus opposed practice one. If we can accept that this isn't how it would look in a game, how can we then how do we, how do we then continue with that with that way of working? We know it's not the most efficient thing. Now that doesn't mean we've got what the answers that we know what is more efficient specifically, but we know that the efficiency of transfer from unopposed practice to a game is not going to be 
the same as an opposed practice to the game. Now, obviously, it's the way in which it's coached, and people will say, oh, well, Guardiola uses unopposed practice, and Klopp uses it. Yeah, but I guarantee that when Guardiola and Klopp use unopposed practice, they're probably bringing a lot of contextual interactions to it. They're highlighting what some of the variables are. You know, you got that 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 video that went viral a few years ago with um, Guardiola speaking to um, Raheem Sterling about, you know, I think it was about opening up and receiving on the back foot and his movement. There was no opposition in that in that video, but you can tell by the conversation they're having. There's a lot of bloody detail, and that's all I say to coach: to think about the level of detail that you're providing and whether it's actually relevant or useful. Think about the practices and whether we're actually with, with or without the context, are actually going to have the efficiency that you need them to in order to see that development aspect transfer over to the game. And the reality is this. You're never going to get closer to the game than playing the game. Now, coaches say, well, why don't we just play games in training? Well, if you feel like you're skilled enough and articulate enough to notice everything that goes on within the game and you can bring those points to the player's consciousness, then go for it. But that's a very difficult skill to manage as well. So, again, it comes back to the initial piece around coaches want to have that control piece. They need to have that element of certainty. But in actual fact, what we need to do is help players embrace the element of uncertainty so that they can develop and effectively perform when it gets to the game day. And that was a bit of a ramble, but hopefully that makes sense. Could I finish that off? Because actually, there was there's a lot of words that you've used before. And it came up again just in that last one. I think it's outstanding. And it comes back to, like, certainty. And something I was thinking about there is how can we design stuff where it's safe uncertainty? So what we're doing is we're creating uncertainty, which is the unpredictableness of the game, but it's a safe environment where you can explore and experiment and try things versus another end, which would be safe certainty or unsafe certainty, where there's like, this is what you do. But again, it can be certain. Sometimes coaches are hostile and quite error corrective, or in other cases, they're encouraging, but they're still telling them what to do. How can we let the players make their own decisions? I'll tell you how you do it, Gerard. Safe uncertainty is letting them be aware and have conscious awareness of what the variables are that will impact on their decisions. So now we're giving them the clear reference points for them to react and respond to. We're not telling them how to respond, we're not telling them how to react, but we're letting them know collaboratively, whether that's us pointing it out or us delving into what they've what they've picked up on and scanned and, and, and you know got into their awareness, if you like, around what the variables are that will impact them. Now, if they're aware of the problems, if they're aware of the variables and how they then impact on those potential problems, there's an element of safe uncertainty because they don't know what the variables are going to present for themselves within each given situation. But what it will do is it will allow them to get to a point where they understand that X, Y, Z a, B, C, other things that are going to impact on my ability to perform whatever my outcome is. So if I can constantly be in tune to those things, if I constantly am actually how much space is space for me, how much space is space for Gerard, how much space is space for Johnny, how much space is space for Caleb, then we can recognise that every decision is individual and is dependent on our subjective ability to perform. So as an example... You put Neymar in a yard of space, it's very different to maybe putting, let's say, I don't know, Harry Maguire in a yard of space. Their yard of space looks very different. Them being in comfortable space, now the distance has changed. Now the variables start to come into play. 
now that now the pressure starts to impact. You can give Neymar the ball with two players around him inside a yard of a yard of space. He can probably do something with it. You give that same scenario to Harry Maguire, he might need a yard and a half, maybe two, or possibly even five, because he's Harry Maguire. But you get you get where I'm going with it. Um, but no, I think you're spot on, Jordan. You know, I think it's creating that safe uncertainty, but highlighting those variables. Like, that's that's how I look at it anyway. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Johnny. If you've got anything to add, or Caleb, I don't know. You had a question here as well, mate. I'm good, boys. Loved it. Yeah, it was a question for me, and you just sort of answered it. Um, I wanted to ask um, going into um, individualized training sessions, definitely you, it has to be on, it has to be unopposed, and it's more like without um, um, opposition at the moment. So it's more like a one against one, just a coach and the player. At that point in time, the player has to, at that point in time, know that um, we don't have a position. It can't be a true reflection of the game, but I'm using it to tidy up what I've learned in the main session. That was just the point. I think you hammered on it, your last um, point. I've just got to say something here, because it, it might be semantics, but um, for me, individualised, we might be getting confused with potentially, and again, it could be semantics, individualise and individual training. I mean, I teach this a lot on some of the A-licensed courses and what have you. And I would agree and disagree. I think individualised is where you can develop the individual within the team. That's the definitions by which I'll go by. So I'm saying this even to my coaching staff, like every training session, based on what we've just described now, we're designing team practices, but we're individualising, you're personalising your, your coaching because you're thinking about the individuals within the practice. So how you individualise your, your message or even the design constraints, whether it be the task, whether it be the challenge, whether it be the rules, because that will elicit certain problems that you want that player, that individual. It's the individual key considerations you're thinking. So if you know this kid needs to get better at finishing one-on-one against the keeper, you've got, but you're working on the principle of breaking lines and you've got a possession practice and it's directional, it might be that as they're working 4v4 or whatever the numbers are in the possession box, but as we arrive and we break that line, Whoever's running onto the key, the keeper, or it could be this centre forward. As we get that ball forward into him, he's one on one with the keeper. Only he's one on one, so he's got X number of seconds to finish one on one. And then it could be a progression of, you know, maybe one defender can recover from behind, so that way he's dealing with the keeper, but he's also dealing with pressure from behind. You know, there's different considerations. You might buddy people up. You might, you know, it's a webinar or a podcast for another day, but. Individualized coaching is opposed. It's it's interference. It's you're thinking about rules and challenges to get the best out of the individual. Individual practices, they'll typically be unopposed, and a lot of people typically design drills to work on the one-on-one stuff, whether it be striking, free kicks, attacking from crosses or deliveries from crosses, whatever it may be. But it's not to say you can't do it opposed either. Can you do individual practices opposed? Of course you can. Can you do individual practices with interference? Of course you can. I've used, um, well, I've even used like mini goals as obstacles so that the players like in an unopposed environment or with interference or there's even pressure, 
they're receiving, they've got to beat the defender. So that's a one on one. But as they beat that defender, they've got to do, look in for different crossing variations. So how they cross, whether it's a pullback, whether it's a driven, whether it's a lofted. But there might be mini goals, or sometimes I've used like seven aside goals as an obstacle because that can represent something where they've got to learn how to get the ball. And uh, could be anything. That could be in an in a individual practice. You know, so again, we've got to be careful that we don't think that, you know, unopposed can only be individual and opposed can only be team because you can still do opposed with individuals as well. I did one-to-one training for years. And, and don't get me wrong, there was a lot of unopposed stuff in there, but there was also a hell of a lot of unopposed with interference and unopo- uh, opposed where I was pressurising them from behind or I'd have another player pressure from behind and they'd have to work on what we've worked on before the start of the practice. So I think it, it, it depends, and that's the beauty of coaching is it depends. I think you're spot on the journey. I think one thing that must be highlighted, obviously, when we're doing a one-to-one session, guys, like, you are limited by the fact that it is one-to-one. You know, there isn't any other players to utilise within the environment. There isn't any other players to kind of um, get involved in the action, which is why it's so important that if we are going to use our unopposed practice, that we bring that context to it, recognise that actually there is no players around us, there is no one else around us. So how do we bring that context into it more specifically? How do we help the players understand that actually yeah, we might be working on something 1v1 and opposed? However, what's really key is do they fit in with the game? Do they understand this? The amount of one-to-one coaches that I see just getting players dribbling in and out of cones, in my opinion, absolutely why not environment where they have to dribble when they're actually taking contact? What does that look like? And I think that's the key piece for me. Can we get that to happen? So, that, I mean, that would be my two cents on that, really. But I think, Caleb, it's a good question to consider. Um, thank you for that. I don't know if that answered your question, though. Um, Brian, over to you, man. Yo, how are you doing, guys? You all right? Yeah, very well, thinking yourself. It's been a while, man. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, I've known Yas for a while. Just wanted to say that these podcasts are fantastic, man. Um, and they're really informative. I've just started watching and stuff. So keep up the good work, guys. I can't lie. Um, can I just share a bit of what I'm doing like, right now? <laughs> of course you can. First of all, appreciate it. Appreciate the feedback, man. Really appreciate that. I'm glad to see that's having an impact and everyone's getting involved. Um, but yeah, go on, talk to us, Brian, man. Yeah, so... Um, Currently, um, had a game today um, against um, Swansea, um, and one of the common problems that um, our group is having an, at the moment. I work with the under 11s um, Just for context, um, we play four two one one. Um, well, a goalkeeper as well. Four two one one. So two hot, two midfielders, one number ten, and a striker. And quite a lot of the problems is we tend to win the ball quickly in the wide areas. And then when it gets to like a throw-on or one of the wingers has the ball, we struggle to circulate the ball from left to right or play away from pressure, just to be simple, if there are no forward options. Um, so going off to a conversation in terms of um, unopposed practices or unopposed interference, I'm kind of currently trying to plan it, um, maybe like a warm-up activity or maybe a deliberate practice where they may get the opportunity to 
you know, feel the similar situation. Because in my mind, I was thinking, well, I might be unopposed with interference. Made the pitch like rectangle. We might have two goals there. Two teams working with one ball lead to something across, playing with one tie to another to an end zone. But then I was thinking, well, actually, maybe if I put it in a, like a game and the, the pitch is much more narrower um, and let's say bonus points, if you're able to play away from pressure, move the ball left to right or so forth, the goal is now active, you can now score. Um, instead of doing four cones just marked out, um, pass the ball, drop off, receive, pass it to your teammate and then, you know, follow your pass and move on and stuff like that. So, so that this conversation has made me really think about what I'm going to do tomorrow in terms of this, this session. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on it? Um, just to, like, just hopefully the mental picture was clear enough. If you've got any other questions, feel free to ask. Um, um, but yeah, that's about it, really. Gee, do you want to jump in this one first? Yeah, I like it. I think... Um... I didn't hear everything only because I was I've, I've changed from Bluetooth, so I'm driving. My bad, but <laughs> no, it's good, no, but it's it's good that you're thinking about the game. You think you're rethinking about what the game looks like, and again, you, I, I caught the back end where you said versus doing a passing whatever, actually trying to create something. And if I understood right, unlock a goal or whatever. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but... Right. So that's, I mean, I did something similar the other day where I had varied methods of scoring. So this was with our under-12s. And basically, one team, again, directional to Yaz's point, you tap one and defend the other. So team is defending uh, goals behind them. But the goals was like balls on the cone. So there was three equally spread out. So like central, wide and wide. Yeah. So then, obviously, they've got that threat behind. But if they win it, they can attack an end zone. Once they attack an end zone, uh, more than three times, I think it was, they can dribble or run into, receive into. They unlock the two wide goals. There's these two wide goals where they're mini goals, but imagine wide goals right and left, encouraging like switch. And if they're scoring one, it's worth one point. But if they can score by playing with disguise... And they might attack one end, but then change their mind and go to the other. They get two points, but they've got to unlock the goal first. It's locked um, mm. by obviously attacking the end zone. For the other team, theirs was once you knock all three balls off the cone, you immediately unlock the wide goals for extra points. And it was awesome because if you're talking about like weight of pass, accuracy, breaking lines, like the fact they've got an obstacle target, you've got central targets. It's there. To your point about unlocking goals and stuff, it's giving them challenges. It's like gamification. You know, Yaz, you were going on about you used to play the PlayStation and all that. You still do. Kids play games. They play video games. They love it. They love challenges. Yeah. They love missions. They love levels. So the more that we can create things like that, the better. Like, if you do this, you unlock this. That's a huge one within the design. And then I think... You know, again, like, I mean, the, the practices that you talked about and the one that I just described, If it, it's always hard when you, you don't show it visually, but it, it just encourages players to twist and turn. So straight away, there was different player actions and they're attacking one end. Now they can attack another because they've unlocked that goal. So I think you're doing, like, that thought process as an idea is good because you're creating loads of incentives for the players. You're giving them a mission. 
And that's the game. You know, if we can do this, we can get the ball to our danger players. Who's going to hurt the opposition? So how do we do that? What's our strategy? So hopefully all good thinking. Yeah, and just to tail on to that one, Brian, is, you know, the key word that Gerard just used is about incentives. I think for me, it's always about developing incentives for the players to work with rather than in restrictions to, to stop the players from doing certain things. It's by incentivizing it, recognizing that actually, yeah, it's got maybe more points for this or more points for that. But actually, what we're really doing is trying to say, right, based on the given context, this might be where we want to encourage your play rather than telling them we don't want them to play elsewhere. And I've, I've had sessions all the time where you know I watch coaches and they. They stop players from doing certain things, and they actually they actually say they can't do that, or they ban certain actions. But that's yeah. not what the game is, and I think you've got to be really conscious that we don't want to ban anything. We, we want to maybe encourage some things over others, but the key bit is recognizing, helping them recognize rather why we're encouraging it, where the encouragement comes from, and what the reason behind that is. But also recognizing that other moments there is other solutions, and they they're free to explore those and. and you know, embark on those journeys himself as well. That's a great point, actually, because you'll see where people say, like, you know, you've got to play forward in, or you can only play, you can only score after four passes or something stupid like that. But then what happens if Yaz is on, he can play him in one touch? Or, you know what I mean? Or if you say you can only score by getting, um, the ball must come from here because you want to amplify that. But actually, the game is I can score from wide or from across or from here. And if you change it and you're using language like try to, can you, um, you're relating it. You know, I've, I've done it before where I try to play forward in three passes or less or three touches or less. But you decide when it might take more, they might take less. But you're not restricting them. And I saw the other day someone in the academy was working on a session where it was to score had to go into the wide zone because they wanted to work on the pullbacks. So I said, yeah, but what's happening now is it's creating an, an unrealistic game where they're only attacking wide. They're not attacking central. So the kid was through on goal. He's received. In a normal game, he'd have a shot. But because of the rule of practice, he had to come back and then pass the ball backwards and go wide. But in a real game, he'd have gone on goal and try and score. So then I was saying, right, how can we change this so that you've got X amount of points if you can score centrally? If the ball comes from a wide, it's worth this many. And I think that's stuff that you need to think about. Definitely. And just to build on that, one question I always ask coaches to think about is what your players are doing in the game and what you're encouraging them for them to do in the game. If they did that on match day, would you praise or discourage because like Gerard just mentioned there, you might have a player who can play someone through on, on one pass or one touch, but your practice is set up to, to stop them from doing that. But on a game day, you'd then be saying to them, well, why didn't you play it through on one touch? Well, they didn't play it through on one touch because you told them that that's not, that's not what they're meant to be doing. Now, if that's the message that they take away from training into the game, you're not going to be happy most of the time. So it's really, really being careful and considerate around the challenge you place for the player the instruction you were giving them, but again, coming back to that key piece I mentioned earlier, helping them recognise why you're encouraging certain things over others, helping them recognise why some things are being incentivised greater than others potentially, and what the reasons for that are. And again, that, that word that we used earlier, that variable process, the variables that impact on that decision, 
when might it be best to just go for the, the, the three points by switching the play? Not because it's three points, but because that's what's needed. And recognising when might we need to just go through the central area because actually the wide area is blocked. And this all comes back to, again, that repetition about repetition piece. Are we giving them the opportunity to repeat the process of finding solutions for the problems that are in front of them? Again, linking that back into something that we've recently discussed about the game is based on principles. It's directional for a reason because I'm trying to score and you're trying to stop me and vice versa. So if that's the key and that's the end goal, why should we not just praise and encourage anything that the players find as a solution to dealing with that as a problem? That's just my two cents on that. Um, hopefully that satisfies your answers, uh, Brian. Well, can you guys hear me? Yeah, can you hear you now, mate? Oh, um, yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's a good three for four, definitely. Um, what I was gonna do is I was gonna take a picture of like I've just got it on my whiteboard, just um a drawing of what I've had in mind so far. Then maybe just to add a bit more context so everyone can see like um like G was saying in terms of the mini goals on the side potentially or the big goal or um the dotted line zone, just so everyone can kind of see the thought process that I had in mind and then you know, and then we'll try it and then maybe you guys might DM you tomorrow and see, let you know how it goes. But what I really did like is the the language that you guys picked to, um, in terms of try to, can you, instead of you can't do this before, um, that makes sense. So um, hopefully it's useful. So I'm going to I'm gonna take a picture of it and then I'm going to add it to the, the the original tweet of the of the space, if that makes sense, so then everyone can see it. Brilliant, and we can we can talk about it after and share ideas. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Let me, let me just up, let me just upload it now. Nah, great stuff. Riz, talk to us. Question: What is it? What are your thoughts? Hi, thanks for having me on. Can you all hear me? Yeah, can you hear you fine? Um. Actually, I just wanted to um, firstly say thank you for um, letting me jump onto this. I'm actually a grassroots coach quite early on, so this is a little bit um, detailed for me, but it, it's really good. I mean, I've um, been learning a lot about relevance and realism and repetition, so it's good to see it from a different perspective as well. And um, a lot of what you've said resonates with me with what I like to do in my coaching and justifying what I'm doing, how realistic would it be in a game scenario. Just picking up on the last point, what you said about incentivizing the practice um, before I ask my question. What I wanted to add to that is I've actually used that a couple of times when I've had a group and I put them into small 2v2s, 3v3s and um, incentivized it. So if it's like um, playing through the thirds or, you know, you get three goals for achieving the outcome and one goal for doing it. So you're not restricting them. You're giving it an incentive. Um, but what one of the other coach developers did actually explain to me is if you put a, a whiteboard on the side and whoever scores the goal and achieves that outcome... Um, they're actually go off the pitch for a second and go and tally up. And for a, um, 30 seconds or so, the opposition who have just conceded have then gone overload temporarily. So it's getting them to kind of be switched on enough to recognise that they've got a momentarily 3v2 and can they go and score and do the same. And it's organised chaos um, and it's worked absolutely brilliantly. So I'm a, I'm a um, I really, really like using the incentive approach. So I'm glad that um, you've kind of um, enhanced that um, opinion. 
Um, just briefly, my question is relating back to the unopposed practices. Um, I've got a mixed ability group and um, under 13s, we're moving obviously to tactics, formations and everything like that. But I do find that it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that when I've got three or four who are technically um, unable to be able to understand tactics, formation, positioning because their um, technique is letting them down. So my question to you is, with those particular players, do I separate them from that practice and work on them separately on their technique, on their first touch, on receiving on the back foot, on passing without opposition? Or do I just integrate them into the team in a training session and just let them pick it up under pressure? I think it's a great question, but just to come back to your initial point about the, the tally up thing, I think just to kind of maybe potentially develop that further, maybe not send the players across straight away, but give them the opportunity to say, right, if you've scored X amount of points and you want to go and tally up, you can. But at the same time, you can also try and remember it. So then they now can, can consciously thinking, right, is now the right time to leave the pitch and go and tally up? Or can I hold on to the, can I, can I hold on to retaining the information and understanding that I did score? And I can help my team out first and then go and do it later. But then put the responsibility on them in a way where actually if you forget to do it, then you don't get those points. Um, but helping them recognise that actually the moment that they pick to leave that pitch could be a crucial one to do for their team and, and, and where the opposition are currently. So that's just a consideration around that. In terms of your question about the, the different the mixed abilities, personally, I'd throw them straight into a game. I don't like the idea of unopposed practice personally. I mean, I've done this from with players as young as four years old that maybe have never kicked a ball before and they've come into it. What I would look to do, though, is I'd look to think, right, the game is real because it's mixed abilities, it's differentiation, it's unpredictable. You can't take those players out on a game day. So are you really helping them by taking them out in training? That's one consideration I'd make. The second one is, when you put them in the practice with the other players, if that's the way you're going to do it, think about how you can maybe manipulate and constrain the environment in a way where those players can still have a relative level of success. So it might be that there's a retreat line. So every time a particular player gets the ball, you might put a retreat line and say, right, the opposition needs to get back behind a certain point before they can go and press or whatever that looks like, just based on when certain individuals pick it up. Or you might even have certain zones in the pitch that those players can dribble into to to be safe for for a momentary, it might be two seconds, three seconds, so they can gather themselves, make a decision if they need to make a decision. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it, but I guess in short, I wouldn't separate them. Um, there's a lot of coaches that probably would and say, well, we need to work on the technique, yeah, but again, if I go back to my earlier point, if we're working on technique out of context, is it really technique that's going to help them when they get into the game situation? I don't know if that answers your question or helps, but Gerald, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I've got, I mean, you said there's, it's probably a, a podcast for another day and it, there's a lot that you can do. And I was thinking the same, safe zones, having safe zones where you can receive under a certain amount of seconds so it's not under pressure. Um, equally, having uh, zones where they can drop into. So it helps them just to get that quality touch. It could be a challenge around the touch. So how can their first touch allow them to play forward? And that can be a challenge. So if it's a technique issue... It's where are you receiving? And then you're giving them feedback. So you're saying, like, if it came off the, you know, whatever, what part, what's the largest surface area? What's the biggest part of your foot? 
how that allow you to be able to control the ball forward, what can you do? Having players give each other feedback, you know, so peer-to-peer learning, so they can learn off each other. Um, one thing I've done, I took from rugby, actually, and just another idea is we call this thing called a skill zone. So you've got your practice where, if we're talking about differentiation, you've got different levels of ability. One thing you could do is that you've got players who are in the main game, but there can be a separate game going on on the other side of the pitch. And it's not that, you know, kids feel separated or, you know, like punished or anything like that, or because you can mix it up. But you can have a skill zone on the outside where players can choose to go into if they need to. So they can, they've been given the ownership of, they need to dip into that to get more repetition of something they can do. Or you might go, right, you guys, you're going to play a, a 2v2 over there. I did this the other day. So I had a girl who was struggling at technique of when to dribble, when to pass, and, and just general technique of dribbling and confidence. But she wasn't getting opportunities within the game to practice it either. And it was passing a bite. So we had a skill zone where on the outside it was a 2v1, a little 2v1. And, and again, she was getting opportunities where it was an end zone game. So they recognised like when to dribble into it, when not to. And it really worked for her because while we were all playing our game over here, they had a separate field over there, which was adjacent. It was side by side. And she was getting opportunities like, oh, pass to the 2v1, or she'd lose it, or she'd take too big a touch. But then there was other times where she got it just right. And obviously I was praising her. And then we brought her from the skill zone back into the game. And she did a lot better. So there's other ways where you can sometimes reduce the complexity you know, because sometimes the bigger game or the medium-sized game might be too much for them, especially if it's 11 v 11. So you may need to think about, like, certain areas of the field where you create those little 2v2s, 4v4s, and give them that repetition of, uh, of the outcome. Thank you. Um, that's really useful information, honestly. Pretty spot on. It's something that, you know, a colleague shared with me a few years ago. We... We didn't call it a skills design. We called it a, a lab. So they could go away and identify anything that they were struggling with, potentially within the practice that we were doing. And they, they, you know, they'd approach one of the coaches and be like, right, this is this is something that I feel like I'm struggling with. As an example, the ownership is on them to help kind of identify where their challenges may be. And we, we work with them to set up a practice alongside it, similar to what Gerard has explained, um, that might help them build their confidence, if you like, in, in, in overcoming that challenge within the game or, or potentially help them develop a contextual understanding as to how they might go about developing that once they get back into the main practice. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a few different suggestions there. I don't know if any of those help or they don't help. But No, thank you. That was uh, that's really brilliant feedback and I'll look to try that out at my next training session. And with regards to um, the tallying, uh, you know, I never actually thought about it from that angle about making them even make a decision about when's the right time to leave. So really appreciate the feedback. Yeah, and feel free to reach out. You know, if you, anyone, not just yourself, anyone wants to reach out, you know, extra mentoring, any ideas, if you want to share your session plan, feel free, reach out, you know, share me your session plan or what you're thinking. Or we could always jump on a call and, again, just unpack stuff further. You know, we're here to help. So if there's anything there that you're like, oh, I'm just struggling with a couple of ideas, how can I change this a little bit? You know, feel free to reach out to us and we can go through some of that, no problem.
hundred percent. And on that note, you know, if anyone else, unless you've got any other questions, go on, Caleb. We've got a hand up there. Go on, mate. Yeah. Um, lastly, I wanted to ask about um, difference in constraints and rule in not the rules in practice. Sorry, sorry, Caleb. I'm really struggling to hear what you're saying there, mate. There's a lot of background noise there, Caleb. Can you get me? Yeah, it's a bit clearer now. Go for it. All right, so I wanted to ask the difference and giving rules to these certain players. Is it advisable when we're giving during practices? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? I, I didn't. I didn't hear. I don't know if Yaz did. I didn't hear it. I only heard like towards the last end. It was echoey. I was trying to find out if it's advisable to give constraints and rules during your practices. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But obviously, you wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't use the word constraint to the players because they'll probably think like, "What the hell does that mean?" Um, but I would definitely be introducing them. Um, and sometimes as well, also involving the players in that discussion because there's times where I've changed certain things and you have to adapt, don't you? And we talked about this on the webinar tonight, like the step principle. Is it is it your space? Is it is it the players? You know, is it the task? Is it time? Is it, what is it? Um, is it the location of the, the balls that, needs to change is it the where the goal is located is it the method of scoring do you need to make it more challenging less challenging so absolutely um but also involving the players in that design as well because sometimes i'll tell you like they'll have better answers than we have there's been so many times where grassroots and academy players i'm sure yes you've felt this i've put on sessions i've gone guys how could what could we do to make this even more difficult for you for the for the attackers and they've come up with some rules. I'm like, I'm, I'm stealing that. I love that one. So even involving them in some of that decision-making, because again, you're developing other key qualities as well. Yeah, and just to kind of add to that, I think it is important that we involve the players in that experience of collaborating on designing the practices. We then find out what works for them, what doesn't work for them, and how we can make that even better for them. And ultimately, if we if we're trying to be the best that we can be at coaching, it's about making sure the environment is right for them, based on the needs and their and, and, and what they're expected to go into when it comes to the game day. So you're yeah, not a great point, Richard. Brian, you got another question? Um, no, not another question. I was just going to say I've uh, attached a picture to the the bottom of the tweet. So if anyone wanted to look at it. Well, I just drew, drew it real quick um, and then maybe discuss it, maybe not, or for another time. Um, yeah, that's it. Awesome, awesome. We'll, we'll definitely check that out. I'm just conscious of time. You know, we had a late start today and we've been on it for quite a while. So um, unless anyone's got any other questions or key things they want to kind of cover, I think we'll look to wrap up and then um, we'll touch base on a, on a one-to-one potentially there, Brian. Yeah, sure. No worries. Gerard. Just want to let them know where they can get in touch with you, mate, and about the you learn platform as well, maybe. 
Yeah, so anyone who's interested in, again, learning more about this stuff, find out more courses, getting mentoring. I did create this digital app. You can download it. If you click on my uh, Twitter handle, you learnably, you'll be able to find information. It's free to download. And again, there's online courses, there's expert interviews with coaches across a range of different sports, not just uh, football, soccer. And there's also mentoring opportunities as well. So youlearnbly.com. And again, similar to Yaz, you know, feel free to reach out to us, whether it's via Twitter, uh, youlearnbly, U-L-E-A-R-N-B-L-Y, or whether it's my own personal, uh, G-E-R-A-R-D underscore Jones. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to supporting everyone in the journey. Thanks for tuning in. 100%. 100%. And guys, yeah, similar here. If you want to get in touch, feel free to let us know. Drop me a, drop me a DM, drop me a tweet. Um, and then we can try and help you as best as we can. Obviously, myself and George just delivered our first webinar tonight around the practice spectrum. Um, hopefully, we'll, we'll be sharing some slides on that. Uh, if you've got any questions regarding that, let us know. And uh, just keep an eye out for some of our future events, webinars, talks on here on Twitter Spaces. Um, and just wanted to announce as well for anyone that's in London or can make their way to London. Uh, we'll be, I'll be hosting a uh, Black History Month special event live face-to-face um, on October the 12th where you can find out some more information hopefully in the next 48 hours from that. So keep an eye out for that as well. Um, but get in touch, guys. Great conversation tonight. Some great insights, great questions. Um, keep following us. Make sure, make sure you're involved in all discussions and don't forget to check us out. Coaches Network Podcast is where this will be uploaded if you haven't caught the whole conversation live. Um, you can catch some great content, con- content on there as well alongside the UDMB platform which Gerard's already mentioned so guys thanks again for your involvement tonight really appreciate it take care guys and have a great, great evening great, great evening everyone goodbye well there you have it guys another episode of the Coaches Network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete talent and personal development together to just one platform and you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.